Welcome everyone to the Wea Bros Anime Podcast. I'm Wea Bro Derek. I am Wea Bro Sean. Uh, before we get into the week in review and Vault of Series Past today, Sean, there's something we need to take a look at. The third season of Attack on Titan, of course, doesn't air till this July. But last week, online retailer Super Groupies revealed its latest line of Attack on Titan-themed merchandise, which includes a set of lingerie. I'm going to send you the picture right now. I want you to take a look at this. I want to know, yay or nay? Oh, yes, show me. I'm going to send it through the uh, chat right now. Oh. Now, this new line also includes a watch and, and two different umbrellas, which are also nice, but not as important right now. Maybe I will add the link that I just sent you to the podcast ah. post description. But, Sean, can you describe the attire for our wonderful listeners? Well, right now I'm looking at a loading screen, so I get <laughs> I see the thumbnail. Maybe they're getting swarmed. Okay, here it is. Attack on Titan anime inspires lingerie. Watch and umbrellas. The girl is hot. That lingerie is horrible. I would say the bottom half makes it lingerie-esque. It's, you know, a brown top, a dark brown. There's panties, but a little skirt going over them. It uh-huh. looks awful. So is that a nay? They need to rename the, the line of lingerie Attack on Titties. I am not as averse to it as you are. I've always considered myself more of a garrison guy, but in this particular instance, I would not turn down the wings of freedom. One of the cups has the Survey Corps uh, Scout Regiment badge. The strap in the back is detailed with imagery of Survey Corps scouts and horses walking in line. And then the bottom piece, as you said, is a mesh skirt type deal. And the whole thing is color schemed to the brown and tan Survey Corps uniform colors. It doesn't look like lingerie. It just looks like a, except for, you know, the bra thing. Okay. But the bottoms, they look like something someone would wear shopping. I got to say the umbrella is cool though. Yeah, the umbrella is cool. The watch uh, I'd probably pass on, but there are two different umbrellas. I like the green one. It's got like a forest design again with, with the horses and survey corps members. Now, all this apparel and accessories will set you back a bit. The lingerie is 96 US dollars for a set and the umbrella is 55. Those prices are a little steep for me, especially for the lingerie. I guess there's also the fact that I don't have any particular female in my life to wear this at the moment, and it's not one of those things where you can, <laughs> on the off chance I did manage to get someone over to my place, just pull this out and be like, hey, put this on. But to all you out there listening, uh, if it is something that you think you might like to wear or you'd like your significant other to wear, Super Groupies is taking pre-orders until Sunday, June 3rd, with the ordered items shipping out mid to late October. We'll move along now to the week in review. Sean, I don't know if you're still following Space Battleship Tiramisu, but there's definitely a plot now. Yes, I haven't seen the latest, had a bit of a time crunch, but I am following, so I'm one episode behind, and yeah, I love that show. I'm so glad you introduced it to me. Well, it turns out Operator Cody is not who we thought he was, and that becomes a new storyline with character introduction. Where are you now in the scheme of things? Uh, He just met his, his brother. He's like fighting for the other side now. 
for all as stupid as we've made Space Battleship Tiramisu sound, and in reality it is, they've also actually been building up to this from episode one, because I went back and I looked at it just to verify. Operator Cody, who we now find is Subaru's brother, only ever communicates to him directly in the cockpit and is never seen aboard the ship. He was clearly meant to be this heel turn type character, and I think that's pretty cool. And they, they had been building some of that development with this brother character before they even introduce him because the two or three episodes prior had started utilizing various flashbacks, which we thought were mostly just to push the punchlines of certain jokes like the Christmas light thing. But in reality, they were also establishing some much-needed backstory for this character introduction. There's seven men in episodes, and they actually split the episode in half. They'll have two little arcs. So I really wasn't expecting a, a bigger story. Caught me by surprise. And they're actually moving the plot along, which you'll find when you watch the most recent episode that just came out this past week. Next on the agenda, Steins Gate Zero, Episode 7, Eclipse of the Vibronic Transition, as it's titled. Following the trend of the last few weeks or so, things really escalate at the end of the episode, but as always, best to probably start from the beginning, as we had hoped last week, Mr. Braun did notice that something was strange and did save the day. This is an interesting development because a little later on in the episode, Okabe confronts him about who he is, why he saved them. Turns out in this timeline, Braun and Moeka are still rounders, which was CERN's little mercenary group from the original series, but they weren't the ones who authorized the previous attempt to kidnap Kagari. What do you think some of the possible implications of this are? I don't know, dude. For one, we may get to see Moeka as an ally of sorts, even if only temporary, which I like being a fan of Shining Finger. It also confirms her suspicions that there was an, an organization after Kagari that wasn't even hers, for that matter. And also now we've confirmed that there is another chick with a dynamite bod who is a leading role of some kind in this other organization, the individual that Okabe initially thought might have been Moeka. Yeah, the more, more the merrier. So while Okabe is having his conversation with Brown, or Braun, I think is what the name, that's not his actual, they call him Mr. Braun because I think he's like a beefy. Um, but anyway, Kagari is at the shrine mumbling El Sai Kangru. This is in her sleep, and it's significant to some extent because that's the phrase Okabe always mutters when he's talking something he considers top secret, either with himself or others. She has amnesia, and for her to utter that stuff in her sleep, she's He's probably going to figure out and remember everything. Meanwhile, Suzuha and Ruka have a little chat outside of the shrine, and sidebar here resulting from this, I do hope we get to see Ruka kick some butt at some point this season. Ruka's always talking about wanting to be more helpful with what's going on, right? Uh, they, they brought that up a few episodes now. And... Ruka knows how to use a sword, right? We know this from the original series. I'm hoping those two things come together at some point and we get to see her kick some butt with a sword. You keep calling him her. Okay, sidebar to the sidebar. It's really confusing because when they say the name, I'm 90% sure they're feminizing it. But then they're also turning around and every time somebody asks, they're saying, oh, well, he's a guy. So I don't know what we're supposed to make of that or what we're supposed to say. At the end of the day, I guess it doesn't really matter. But anyway, in the second half of the episode, Suzuha and Okabe are able to convince Braun to help them protect Kagari, for the time being at least. And there's a funny little bit 
going back to the Mark Twain thing I mentioned last week, Suzuha ends up working part-time at the TV shop, which isn't that also something she did in the original Steins Gate series? Yeah, yeah. So funnily enough, here she is again in another timeline working part-time at the TV shop in relation and to now, Ocarina. She has to split her her wages now which is hilarious (laughs) so then the two extras help the main cast figure out the meaning of the k-6205 code that was mentioned during the attempted abduction turns out it's a reference to wolfgang amadeus mozart and speaking of amadeus at the very end okabe gets a call from the ai which has been offline since the abduction attempt Oh, but that's not all. Sean, walk us through that final sequence of events. The AI was calling Ocarine for help, and it was really bizarre. I'm not hearing from her all episode. Well, and, and here's the thing. It's Karisu's voice on the other end of that call asking for help. And at the time, Okabe's reading Steiner ability activates, and he realizes that he's changing world lines. And it's not clear, really, as to whether that's the Amadeus AI reaching out to him, which we assumed. Initially, I assumed it was the AI requesting help from him. But could it actually be another Kurisu because of this whole timeline jump thing? And the episode ends there, or so we thought, because after the credits, just about everything we've probably talked about potentially gets thrown out the fucking window. Dude, you gotta tell me, because I did not watch the end. Ugh, Sean, one of the cardinal rules I know, of anime. I had to cram, I had to cram like three episodes in before the podcast, so <laughs> I skipped it. you must always be aware of potential post credit scenes. Okabe right. fully realizes that the world line has changed. He's standing in the lab, presumably because he hasn't changed his location, but looks it looks a little different, and it's empty. Everyone is gone. And then he hears someone approaching from behind a curtain of sorts. He's freaking out, trying to guess who it could be, and lo and behold, it's Kurisu. The episode officially ends with the two of them staring each other down, and she looks a little surprised. There are so many questions now. Does she know who he even is in this timeline? Has Okabe finally found a line where he will not have to resort to potentially snuggling up to a Karisu AI body pillow? And will he end up staying there? My hope is that he wouldn't because he now feels a connection to everyone in the line he was in previously. But as we learned from the original series, everything becomes a friggin' clusterfuck once the whole line hopping begins. So yeah, you missed a very, very important thing at the end. I can't believe that they would drop that right at the end there. That's bullshit. The advantage of, of watching via an online stream is you can kind of predict. If you see that there's an abnormal amount of time left in the video... <laughs> As they're entering the credits, it should raise a flag that there might be something after the fact. Pro tip. Well, I, I skipped like every episode. I skipped <laughs> Megalo boxes and Darling in the Franks, so I hope there's nothing else that I missed. Um, I don't think I've seen anything for Megalo Box. A lot of shows will just use that as time to preview the upcoming week, but yeah, every now and then they will throw some post-credit stuff. Other minor side note, though, to maybe keep in mind here, as far as the story and in the one timeline goes, Leskinen appears to have disappeared when Maho's trying to reach him about the Amadeus server being down, and that could be nothing 
something, but he could also either be kidnapped or actually working for CERN or this other organization that we don't really know a whole lot about. But, oh dear, this series could become a doozy pretty quickly here. Again, hearkening back to what we talked about in the original series where it was a very slow start in a lot of ways. Once it picked up, it was pedal to the metal all the way, and it seems like things are really progressing along here now. Yeah, I I'm excited now. Well, probably not as captivating as Steins Gate this week. Megalobox also focused pretty heavily on story development. At the end of the last episode, Mikio threatened to expose that Joe uh, was not a legal citizen, and as a result, Nanbu forfeits the match. They never even exit the tunnel. Episode 8, Deadline of the Dream, begins with Joe being understandably pissed off about having to forfeit, and the big question coming into this was, how on earth are they going to get Joe into this Megalonia tournament? Nanbu and the kid play spy games, basically, with the mob boss guy, and they dig up as much info as they can about Mikio, further solidifying what we already kind of knew or speculated. Toronto Mikio's gear is something he developed himself, and he's super salty about his sister basically seizing control of the Shirato group organization, so he's gunning to take her down and her prized Yuri. See, Mikio's gear basically cheats by detecting electrical impulses from other equipment, then using that information to predict what they're going to do. Nanbu takes this info and thinks Mikio is scared to fight Joe because Joe doesn't use gear, and Mikio hence has no real advantage against him aside from maybe some extra punching power. Joe, however, speculates that Mikio doesn't even view him as a worthwhile opponent. The issue, though, is that they still have to get Joe into this match against Mikio. Mikio, he's not really scared of Joe. That's just what Nanbu was thinking. Yeah, I got the same feeling as well. I think Joe's analysis is right in that he's saying Mikio probably doesn't even think I'm a worthwhile opponent. And Mikio, kind of one-track mind here, his eye is on taking down Yuri and his sister Yukiko. Joe is not even real on the radar. Uh, Nanbu tries to convince Yukiko, though, to let Joe have a rematch, but he fails, ultimately. And Joe can tell things aren't going as planned, so like a boss, he crashes the nomination ceremony as Yukiko is about to hand her brother the last ticket into the tournament. After he makes his plea, though, she tears the ticket in two and gives each of them a half. Joe will get another try at Mikio, but now he is 1,000% into outright crushing Joe and Yukiko. So while there wasn't a whole lot of on-screen action this episode, we do get our setup for the Mikio-Joe match, which I imagine will probably take up just about all of next week's episode. I'm looking forward to it. He's underestimating Joe. I think he has a huge ego, and Joe's going to show him what's up. You're exactly right. He doesn't view him as a threat, which will probably be his big flaw here. How big of a hurdle, though, do you think the Mikio fight will be? I mean, it's been established that he's fairly cunning with the kind of tricks and stuff that he's used. He's able to do research, he understands his opponents for the most part, but he won't have any real mechanical advantage with his gear. I, you know, I think the fight is going to be like a normal fight in the beginning. Joe's going to get his butt kicked a little bit, it'll come back, and he'll try something new, and it'll work. <laughs> I do like how most of the major characters right now in this series all have an actual reason to be at the Megalonia tournament. Mikio has a fairly interesting plot. I'm not necessarily rooting against him. I understand why he's doing what he's doing. 
Nanbu's little redemption arc that's going on. And yeah, I mean, he's trying to not be murdered by the mob boss guy too. But you also get the feeling that he's actually interested in this and believes in Joe and believes they can actually win this tournament. And again, the little kid, even though I don't particularly care for children characters in series, it's kind of a staple to have. And in this one though, the kid has a purpose, kind of a touching element in a series that really doesn't have a whole lot of lightheartedness in it. Did they explain what happened to his parents or anything like that? Nope. I don't think he has much backstory. I know in like the second episode, they were, mm-hmm. they showed him and his little friends stealing things. Right. Well, as opposed to Megalobox and Steinsgate, the crew behind A Darling in the Franks took some time to provide us with much needed exposition for a change. We learn a bit about the Franks world and Dr. Franks himself. Flashback to year 2025, a time before Ape ruled all of humanity. Here we find a much younger version Werner Frank. He's working on cloning, but his research is highly controversial and borderline illegal. We learn that Ape is a group of scientists that pretty much show up out of nowhere, but introduce humanity to some sweet mining technology and convert this magma stuff deep within the Earth into a very low-cost source of energy. As a result, they gain a whole lot of political influence. Yeah, and they figured out a way to live forever with that energy. Yeah, this mysterious Ape group seeks out Dr. Frank and actually contracts him to figure out how to turn this magma energy into something that can grant immortality. By 2030 AD, so about five years later, his pseudo-love interest Karina Milsa and him are making significant progress toward actually creating an immortality elixir. According to Dr. Frank, though, mankind might lose its reproductive functions in exchange for its immortality. It turns out that was true, but people still decided that being immortal was worth it. Well, the rich people who could afford to undergo the operation, of course. Eventually, though, the whole immortality thing leads to overpopulation and a heavy tax on childbirth to curb the use of waning resources. At the same time, mass desertification is starting to occur, likely due to the magma mining. But of course, every Everyone ignores the warnings because magma is cheap energy and can make you immortal. By the following year, humanity has reached 70% immortality because apparently the operation that only the rich could afford one year prior became much cheaper at some point and just about everyone else is now booked to become immortal within the next two years. Did I miss anything there or did it actually just jump? No, that's, that's good, man. Dr. Frank himself doesn't really want to undergo the procedure. Turns out Karina also doesn't want to because she wants to marry him and have a kid. They decide to get married, but at this point desertification is spreading and Ape's solution is to build a set of giant roaming plantations, which were to become direct quote humanity's arc so there's yet another biblical reference for you if you were keeping track like i sort of have been as of the last couple episodes then the first giant klaxosaur appears and wreaks havoc on one of the mining facilities they nuke it several times in order to destroy it and as a result half of australia becomes uninhabitable and eventually by 2037 all of humanity lives in these plantations under the council of douche <laughs> That's pretty much the sum of it, right? (laughs) Yeah, that's kind of like how we're living right now in America. (laughs) Minus the immortality. Uh, Shortly thereafter, though, Frank is supposed to get married to Karina. He does, but he skips out of his own marriage registration because he's busy studying Klaxosaur anatomy. Apparently, they're both mechanical and organic, which you can tell pretty much just from looking at them. But they also carry a set of XX chromosomes, which is interesting, I guess. And so Frank's begins to develop the Frank's Max, which 
capital X's XX chromosome. I think that's what that's a reference to in the name of Franks. But for some unexplained reason, you need to have reproductive functionality to pilot the thing to its fullest potential. So Karina volunteers and the thing goes berserk, kind of like what we see in the berserk mode that will happen if one of the female characters takes control by herself. Uh, She dies in a horrible testing accident at the age of 44 years old. It's cool that we get all of this different explanation here, but they still don't really explain why that is the case. (laughs) Why is this necessary? They explained what, but they really didn't explain why. Yeah, they only explained their solution to it, which was to add a a male. So a male pilot and a female pilot to tame the, the Franks. And it's not. They add a male and a female to alleviate the stress, apparently, of piloting one of these units. But in year 2042, they also start injecting their pilots with this yellow blood cell stuff that acts as a conduit of some kind. Frank remarks that, ironically, after losing reproductive functionality, mankind ends up needing more children. So they create the garden, which is the little child production and nurture facility. And over time, the immortal adults apparently forget about the threat of the Klaxosaur, which makes me wonder how much time actually has passed. Do we know what year it is in current Frank's time? Like what year it's supposed to be? It's no, but judging by Dr. Frank's appearance... And considering he's not immortal, he's still aging. It's probably year 2060. Definitely old, and he's got several pieces of himself replaced mechanically. So we can assume that it's been some time, but maybe not all that too distant of a future. Eventually, the Council of Douche figures out that the Klaxos have a queen, and Dr. Frank actually ends up meeting her. We find out through one of his flashbacks. She bites off his arm, and he falls in love. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And at the end of the episode, uh, a couple important things happen though first the kids get a video conference with the council and realize that they're nothing more than defensive tools so hero asks for them to be set free after the next fight and the council is like sure as long as you fulfill your duties and complete the next mission which definitely won't be a suicidally difficult one at all right well if they complete that mission they're probably going to get killed that's what they mean by released Yeah, I've got a bad feeling about that. But lastly, and maybe most importantly, it's revealed that Frank managed to snag some DNA from the queen when she maimed him. And it's heavily implied that Zero Two is a clone of that queen. Yeah, and there's several. He he made several clones. Which is what I believe probably are the nine. The nines have been established as better than everybody else. And so we can assume, if nothing else, that Zero Two at least is a clone. And she's basically a spitting image. So that one stands to reason the most. Overall, I did like this most recent episode. It was much needed backstory, even though they don't really explain how a lot of that stuff works. At least we know that it is the way it is now. So it was nice to get some definition. It's about time. Only five episodes out now from the finish. I have a feeling that Frank and the 13s might actually revolt against this council. Like you said, I have a feeling that they'll probably either be sent on a a mission that's inherently suicidal, or the council will come after them after they complete it. And Dr. Frank cared enough about them to get them a meeting with the council. And it's established that he has a very close connection to Zero Two. He had a very messed up, tortury way of showing it as he was running countless tests and stuff 
on her, but something tells me that deep down he really does actually care about Zero Two, and possibly the other Thirteens as well, since they're motivated by their human emotions, and since he was probably personally responsible in the creation of all of them. He'll probably revolt with them, I'd imagine. It's a little late to to drop all this knowledge on us, but better late than never, I suppose. Yeah, I've been waiting this whole time to figure out what the hell's going on. I, I think everybody has, really. 19 episodes in, and now I know what the show's about. So last week, we decided that our Vault of Series past venture was going to be No Game, No Life, the hit from spring of 2014. It's a fairly popular release. The anime adaptation covers the first three volumes of the light novel series of the same name. It basically follows Sora and Shiro, a brother-sister duo who are shut-in neats. Together they form Blank, an undefeated team of gamers who are outstanding in just about every kind of game imaginable. They are transported to a fantasy world of sorts where warfare has been outlawed by the gods, and every dispute, personal or even international, is resolved through a game of some kind. That's the general premise of it all. Sean, what are your thoughts on No Game, No Life? I picked this show for our Vault of Series past review, and I had no idea what it was about. I had just heard the name before. I didn't even remember anything about it. I just stumbled across. We were trying to pick something, and I was like, well, I've heard No Game, No Life. All right, whatever. Let's watch that one. It's 13 episodes. That was the extent of the conversation. Yep, and uh, there's a lot of things in this show that I do not like. (laughs) A lot of uh, fan service slash etchy kind of things that so I made it to halfway through the second episode, and I said, fuck this, and I turned it off. Now, wow. he, he, hear me out. The etchy, the fan service, and there was some incest, and I really didn't care for it, but I've got a podcast to do. So I turned the show back on. I said, all right, I'll finish it. If I really can't watch it, I'll just tell Derek whatever. And I ended up loving this show. <laughs> <laughs> I went from uh, hating every second of it, turning it off in, in a rage. And by the last episode, I was like, hey, that was pretty good. Wow. <laughs> yeah, so it's a, it's just, it's a show about a brother and sister, both geniuses, and they have their weaknesses, but as a team, they're unstoppable. And I kind of love that. I've always liked, you know, super geniuses in these animes, and I like seeing how they think. And I like seeing how they win these games. It's really interesting. And there was some stuff that I don't like sprinkled on top of it. I'll shoot it over to you. What do you think of it? I'll start with a more general evaluation, and then I want to follow up on some of the things you said. As expected of Madhouse, overall production quality was quite good. I liked the soundtrack. I liked the art style. It was very colorful. The landscapes felt very dreamlike and fantastical, very fitting for the type of feel that they were going for. The narrative itself I thought was fine. I don't know how faithful the anime ending is to what actually occurs in the light novel series, but it tells a complete enough story and leaves things open for a continuation if they wanted to in the future. The show is directed by Atsuko Ishizuka with Juki Hanada offering series composition support. I'm going to test your memory here, Sean. Where have those two names previously come up here in the podcast? I'll give you a hint. It was another Madhouse production. I don't know, dude. It was a place further than the universe. Obviously, No Game, No Life came first, but Ishizuka and Hanada were director and series composer, respectively, for a place further than the universe. Hanada has also come up more than once. As you may recall, he is also the series composer and scriptwriter for Steins Gate and Steins Gate Zero, which is something I looked into like three or four weeks ago when we were trying to decide if they had a change in crew or what the cause 
of the enhanced features of some of the female characters were. Hmm. I want to say a uh, place further than the universe and no game, no life are complete polar opposite. <laughs> They're not, but isn't that the sign though of a good director and a composer to be able to create very different kinds of projects? Yeah, they're both different and they're both very good. I do like our main cast of characters in this story. I think they're fun. I think the series itself is pretty fun overall. Fairly lighthearted, aside from a few moments that felt very serious, especially in some of the later episodes, things take a very ominous feeling on. I would have liked for that feeling to persist a little longer than it did, but that's more so just personal preference, really, on my part. I'm kind of more drawn to the darker thematic elements in general, hence the reason I really liked uh, Devilman Crybaby and Death Parade and some of the others like that that we've reviewed here in the vault. I thought the series was pretty funny, but 90% of that humor, like what you were saying, is sexual in nature. So if you're extremely averse to the etchy type content, you might not find it all that comical. It was really funny. Um, so we were talking about shows you could show your mom. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I can't imagine showing this to anybody. <laughs> but I still like it. A guilty pleasure of sorts? Well, uh, I don't know. Following up with the uh, Soroshiro brother-sister incest dynamic that you mentioned here, I think it helps if you think of them as equivalent to a brother-sister figure skating or dancing duo only for games. I don't even want to. <laughs> but you did, and you liked it. I didn't like those things. You know, I felt there were definitely scenes that emphasized the sibling relationship. Usually it was for comedic effect, but it does come off as somewhat incestual, again, particularly for a crowd like us in the West. Not that there aren't places here in the States that are probably into that. When we looked early <laughs> on in, what was it, the winter Crunchyroll oh. numbers for most popular series by state, Citrus was number one in Alabama, and like two or three other places in the South. So take stereotypes for what, what they're worth, but... Uh, the show would have been real popular in the South. And it very well might have been at the time. I didn't get the feeling, though, that the incest was ever like a major part of the storyline like it was in something like Citrus. Uh, the only thing that I really didn't like about Sora and Shiro is that it seemed like they could do no wrong of any kind. I get that they're supposed to be geniuses, but they have the answer to just about every game they play, and it's flawlessly mad out before they even play it regardless of who they're playing against magical beings beings supposedly far more intellectual than themselves and again most of their opponents come in overconfident because of their perceived weakness as humans or immanity as it's referred to in this fictional game universe I think there was only one game, though, where I felt they really had to improvise at all. Otherwise, the conclusion is written in a way that highlights, oh, well, they predicted it from the very beginning, and it worked, and it was really cool the first couple times, like, wow, that's awesome, but then after a while, I felt that it was a little lazy. I know what you mean. So, a lot of the games and how they win it, there's no possible way you as a viewer could figure out how they win. They just pull it out of their ass, but it's still fun. You just got to suspend your disbelief a little bit. What's interesting is uh, in the first episode, they're challenged by the god of this fantasy world in a game of chess, and they beat God at chess. That's how good these two are at games. Mm -hmm. And then that god brings them into his or her, I'm not sure, fantasy world. So they've already beaten the most powerful being in that universe. With the goal of apparently beating him again in that universe as they kind of... And I'd like to see a season two. And it's not unheard of for them to come back and do sequel seasons some years down the line. They did it with the Gashikashi recently. It's been two or three years since that 
came out and then they had a new season in this past winter. I haven't heard anything about a No Game, No Life sequel. However, there is a prequel movie, No Game, No Life Zero, which supposedly covers the great war that is referenced in the main series. So we may have to watch that at some point in the future. But overall, as far as this series is concerned, good animation, good music, okay sound design. I thought the story was passable enough, even if a little at times. I reckon it'll probably come out to around a 7.5 or so after I crunch the numbers on my list, which again is pretty good. There's a chance I'll buy anything a 7 or higher. It's rated 8.4 by the My Anime List community, but you always have to take those ratings with a grain of salt. So overall, again, fairly good series provided you don't mind or can suspend your aversion toward the etchy style of humor. I'm going to give this a 7 out of 10. And if you're like me and that stuff kind of turns you off, I'd still recommend this show. I don't know. Maybe it might awaken something in you. And you like, this is perfect. <laughs> Let me ask you this, though. Had they taken out some of the incestual humor and such in that, how much higher would you have rated this? I'd probably give it an 8. Pretty significant difference maker then. I'd say so. And you posted on the website your rating system, and, and I'm right in line with that. Go read that if you haven't read it. So an 8 out of 10 is like, you loved it, you would recommend it. And 7 out of 10 is like the tipping point. You're like, this is a good show. It's not necessarily one of my top favorites, but it was a good show. And that's why I'm giving this a 7 out of 10. Well, there you have it, folks. Next time, we'll have the usual week in review, and I suppose we'll have to think of another topic to discuss. I did enjoy last week's discussion about summoning one character to help you save or destroy the world, but if you're listening and there's something you'd like discussed, feel free to reach out to us on the Weabros blog website. Just search Weabros blog into Google. Alternatively, you can email weabrosblog at yahoo.com. We'd love to hear your thoughts, and if you play your cards right, you might just be fortunate enough to get onto the show for a segment or two with us. Again, thanks for listening. Thanks, everyone.